Good morning, Bethel. So good to see all of you this uh, wonderful, brisk morning. So glad you are here with us today. One of the things in our media history and in our country ha that has been uh, something that Americans have enjoyed is the long-form interview. You know, Barbara Walters made her uh, self-famous by sitting down with interesting, famous people for, for years. And then the Sunday morning Meet the Press that has been on for decades where typically a politician would sit down and take hard questions from the interviewer. In today's generation, it's kind of transformed a little bit. The, the most downloaded podcast is the, the Joe Rogan podcast, and he sits down for a long-form interview with fascinating people. And here recently, the most watched um, video each week on Twitter is the Tucker Carlson podcast, which he interviews famous people or, or interesting people to, uh, in a long-form uh, format. And so this has kind of been something that has found... Um, a place in people's lives where they enjoy finding out about people. What makes them tick? What about them? And we come to our text today confronted with one of, if not the most remarkable interviews in all of human history with the most fascinating guests being interviewed. In John chapter 3, we have a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus chooses a conversation to, for self-disclosure, for revelation, and for confrontation. It is the simplest form. You know, the, the publishing world has for, you know, for generations... You could walk into a bookstore like a Borders or a Barnes & Noble and pick up some kind of book like Calculus for Dummies or Cooking Basics for Idiots. Today's generation just goes on YouTube and looks at a five-minute video to figure that out. They'd never walk into a bookstore, and it'd be a little condescending to use that same kind of language with the gospel we as Christians have to admit that one of our challenges is taking something that is so simple and we have the tendency to make it so complex. So let's start reading here this morning in John chapter 3, verse 1, and let's look at this amazing interview. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Now we learn a lot in just these two packed verses, here in John 3, we have a unique man at a unique hour, and we're going to see he comes with a unique request. Nicodemus is identified in the text as holding three titles. In verse 1, he's called a ruler of the Jews. In verse 1, he's again called a Pharisee. Then we'll see in verse 10, he is referred to as a teacher of Israel. He was a man of political power, social esteem, and religious office. He was a teacher of Israel. He was a certified interpreter of the law, a man of great respect, and a member of the council. All of those interviewers that I talked about at the beginning of my message, no doubt in his day they would have loved to have sat down and interviewed Nicodemus. 
And yet, we have Nicodemus coming to interview Jesus, not out in the public, not so it can be broadcast to all of the world, but we have him coming how? By night. Some commentators try to say that this is just a chronological mention, but if you read and know the book of John, you'll know that it is so much more, as we're going to see here in just a few minutes. We'll see how Jesus speaks of the dichotomy between light and darkness, and John picks up on that all through his entire gospel. The metaphor of darkness is so powerful because we have this man, Nicodemus, who is representing so much culture, so much education. He's kind of this triple threat standing in Israel. This man that anyone passing Nicodemus on the street would have associated him with light, but yet Jesus confronts him with the reality of his darkness. The reality of this text is... To become a follower of Jesus, we need to see, number one, the absolute necessity of salvation. In John chapter 2, prior to this, we have Jesus going into the temple, cleansing and demonstrating his authority. He declared this house to be his father's house, demonstrating his authority. He cleansed it of the money changers. And you can just imagine the commotion that this created for the Sanhedrin. Yet it was by night... After this event that Nicodemus came to see Jesus, instead of coming to Jesus by day to say something rude to Jesus, as the Pharisees were known to do, he comes and he comes by night. Instead, he says what must have been in the mind of Nicodemus, the essence of politeness. In verse 2, we continue. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. When someone gives you a compliment, what do you say? Thank you so much. That was so kind of you. Oh, I appreciate that very much. Like, you, you respond very nicely. Do you notice that here in this verse, Jesus does not do that at all. Jesus doesn't receive his words as a compliment. Jesus doesn't say anything like, you are so perceptive to see that I am a teacher sent from God. They did teach you something in that school of Pharisees. He doesn't say anything like that. Instead, Jesus says in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, he just doesn't get it. So in verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? See, Nicodemus, he isn't being sarcastic. He isn't being flippant. This demonstrates the utter confusion, almost like he has been stunned by these words. It's almost like he's saying, how am I to understand this idea of being born again? You see, Christianity 
is the faith of the twice born. The church is the company of the twice born. It confused Nicodemus in the first century, and not only does it confuse people today, it offends them today. The absolute necessity of salvation is right here in this text, and Nicodemus has problems coming to terms with it. Jesus explains it as simply as he could when he says in verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Then he says in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Being born in the flesh is the firstborn. Everyone who has walked the face of the earth has been born in the flesh. Being born of the Spirit when we choose to accept Christ As our Lord and Savior, that is the second birth. And Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, you see, Nicodemus, if you understood who I am, if you understood why I came, if you understood what I really represent, then you would not be the slightest bit surprised that I have said to you, you must be born again. Let's see the second thing Jesus points out to Nicodemus is the, really it's the inevitability of confrontation. As we share this message that you must be twice born, it is confrontational. It is right here in the text in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? In verse 10, Jesus answers him. He says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't know these things? You see, sharing the gospel is always confrontational. True teaching, true truth-telling always is reducibly confrontational. What I do up here each and every week when I open the Bible, and share God's word, it is confrontational. This man came to Jesus by night to pay him a compliment, and yet here we are in verse 10, and he's utterly confused. And then Jesus kind of heals, you know, he heaps the coals upon his head because of the confusion. It's like Jesus is saying, look here, Nicodemus, Aren't you the one with the seminary degree? (laughs) It's like, ouch. You're the one who's supposed to know these things. Are you telling me that you are a teacher of the law and you don't know this? Confrontation must be involved when we tell people that they need Jesus. When we tell people that they are lost and dead in their sins. Most people today don't think there's a problem with their sin. We live in an a age, a therapeutic age, in which most people think that their problem is somebody else's problem that has been hoisted upon them. Reinhold Niebuhr was a liberal theologian that mostly believed in sin out there in the world around us, but not sin in here 
in our heart. His point was we would be moral people if we did not live in a world with immoral, immoral structures. Have you heard of getting it half right? <laughs> he got it half right. It should have been immoral man and immoral society. But that is confrontational in this politically correct society. We are not supposed to tell people that they are sick. We're not supposed to tell people that we know what their problem is. And we're not supposed to tell people that their solution to their problem is that they need Christ. And we are certainly not supposed to tell people that they're dead in their sin. But that's what Jesus did. So next we see as Jesus transitions here, we're going to see here the centrality of Christ in salvation, verse 12. He tells Nicodemus, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus transitioned here. He reveals himself he identifies himself here as the Son of Man. He said, you called me a teacher sent from God. But when we get to verse 16, we have this marvelous verse. The verse that probably most, if not all of you in here, could quote from memory. John three sixteen. It said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is probably the smallest one-verse summary of the gospel in all of the Bible, which is why it's so precious to us. Because, but we have to remember this verse, it came in the midst of a conversation. And at this point in the conversation, Jesus reveals that he is not only the Son of Man, tying himself to the Messianic ministry foretold by Old Testament prophets, but in this verse, he is asserting his deity as not only the Son of Man, but as the Son of God. He is saying to Nicodemus, do you know who that was yesterday? Cleansing the temple, throwing out the money changers. It was not just a rabbi from Galilee. It was, the, it was not just the Son of Man foretold and foreseen by Isaiah. It was the only begotten Son of God. This verse is precious to us because who does God love? What does that verse say? Who does God love? The world. You can tell every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who walks upon the face of this earth that God loves you. And you can say that not based on your best hunch, but based on the infallible and errant word of God, and we can speak to every human being and tell them that. We can tell every human being that God loves you and that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
If we have something less than that confidence, then we will sit back and hope that people will somehow hear when we have been commanded to go and tell them. The next thing we see in this conversation with Nicodemus is the reality of not being found as a follower of the way, being found as a follower of Jesus. After telling us why he did come in verse 16, and verse 17, he tells us why he did not come. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If someone ever asks, how do you know that Christ is the only way for salvation? How do you know that there's not multiple paths up the same mountain? You can point right back here to John 3.17. Christ did not come to condemn the world. Why? Because he said the world was condemned already. All humanity is already judged guilty and sentenced to death. What is one thing that everyone in this world has in common? We've all been infected with the same virus. What is that virus? Sin. And because of sin, we've already been condemned to death. Why is there condemnation? Because they have already not believed in the name of the Son of God because of their sin. Sometimes people ask me, Pastor Robert, how can God condemn a man on an island that has not heard the gospel? The answer is right here in verse 18. Jesus himself said he has already not believed. We would like to think there is some standing on neutral ground, but there is no neutrality. Christ came to bring life. That's why there is an urgency to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why in the 19th century you saw men like William Carey going to the darkness of India to share the gospel message. Men like Adniram Judson going to China, going up through the rivers in China to share the gospel. That's why in the 20th century, we had men like Jim Elliott who gave their life in Ecuador. And that's why there's thousands upon thousands of people today that we will never know their name going into Muslim-majority countries in the Middle East to share this message. So what is the evidence that you are guilty of following the way? Let's keep going. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is how 
you know that you are a follower of Christ. This is how we know those lives that have been transformed and following or following Christ is that they bring forth fruit. They love the light. Believers that have been transformed by the power of God, they demonstrate fruit and they are not afraid of their actions and their lives being brought into the light. They have nothing to hide. If you are a follower of Christ, it ought to be proof positive in your life. There should be irrefutable evidence to convict you as a follower of Christ. You see, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Was he afraid of what others may think? Probably so. Was he concerned that his visit might be a matter of public conversation in the Sanhedrin? Probably so. Did darkness represent his blindness? Absolutely. Did darkness pre- did the darkness represent his deadness? Absolutely so. But Jesus says to this man who comes under the cover of darkness, if you really want to understand these things, if you really believe in me, then you will not only come by night, but you will walk in the light. And you will walk in the light in a way that your deeds will find you to be guilty of being a follower of mine. You know, Jesus wraps this conversation, this interview with Nicodemus up with some very powerful application that we can use today. Once we make the decision to become a follower of Christ, our deeds should change from what they were before Christ. James says that our works do not save us, but they are proof of our salvation. So I ask you, would your deeds find you guilty as being a follower of Christ? When at work, do you show integrity with your coworkers in the way that you interact with them? Do you show integrity in your business dealings? Or do you participate and talk around the water cooler that does not bring honor and glory to God? Do you send down the river that coworker that you do not like and tell the rest of the office how much you do not like them? Students, when you walk down the halls of your school, do your fellow students and teachers know that you are a follower of Christ? Would the way your deeds of kindness and compassion and the way that you interact with your fellow students and the way that you show respect to your teachers and the way that you are engaged in class and complete your homework, do they reflect that you are a follower of Christ? You see, we do know the end of the story of Nicodemus. In John 19, 39, after the crucifixion of Jesus, Nicodemus comes not by the cover of darkness, but by light. Not as an anonymous believer, but he's putting his reputation on the line with the crucified Lord by bringing 75 pounds of spices 
to wrap his body. I believe Nicodemus stepped into the light. In that moment that Nicodemus joins to publicly minister the body of Jesus, he is saying, here is my fruit in the light. We don't know where in the passage new life came to Nicodemus, but no dead man would do what Nicodemus did in John chapter 19. Nicodemus came to Jesus, a confused man, a lost man, dead in his sins. Nicodemus left a new man and a transformed man. And I believe by the time you get to the end of the book of John, Nicodemus would be a man that would be found guilty as a follower of Christ. If your life was put on trial today, would there be evidence to convict you as a follower of Christ? If I were to ask your boss, Are you a, is this so-and-so a follower of Christ? What would they say? If I were to ask your best friend at school, Are they a follower of Christ? What would they say? We have an opportunity this morning. You have heard the gospel message. For those of you that do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, today can be your day of salvation. For those of you who claim Christ but your life does not reflect that, today can be a turning point. When you walk out those doors for the world around you to see something different about you. Will you be Nicodemus in John chapter 19 and allow the world to see you publicly identify with Christ? Let's pray.